Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock the Night, your boy on social media at MMA LOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, where we now have over 2,700 fighter profiles to make sure that you leave no stone unturned when you're researching these upcoming MMA events. Not only do we have three more UFC events to close out the year, but we also have events from all the other promotions that we cover on the Fight Archive, including Fury FC, PFL, ACA is having two more events this year. We got Aries FC, Cage Warriors, CFFC, LFA, KSW, and A1 Combat Fighting. We got it all there for you guys on the Fight Archive. And just a little bit of a teaser during the holidays, I will be dropping a post on there to take suggestions for more promotions that I should be adding to the Fight Archive now that we have a solid base for the amount of events that we're already covering. So uh, yeah, shout out to you guys. Seven-day free trial is available for you guys to try it out for free. So before you even drop a dime on the archive, you can find out why uh, it is so useful and helpful for you, especially if you do your own predicting analyzing and breaking down fights that's why some of the top commentators coaches fighters and cappers in the space utilize this service because they know they're getting the best damn product they can for this type of service again seven day free trial make sure you guys check it out all right we're back for the final stretch of this ufc calendar year we got three more fights to, or three more events to go on the year and uh, obviously this weekend we got the ufc austin card headlined by a pretty high-level lightweight matchup between Benil Dariush and Armand Sarukian. It was also originally scheduled to be co-mained by another five-round fight between Dan Hooker and Bobby Green. Unfortunately, an arm injury to Dan Hooker has pulled him out and insteps Jalen Turner for a matchup that is a, 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 a according to a lot of people uh, a grudge match it's it's a matchup between two guys and Jalen Turner and Bobby Green who do not really like each other um, so that should be an interesting aspect of this fight really looking forward to breaking that down for you and also the bantamweight debut of Mr. Davison Figueiredo as he steps up in weight and takes on a tough test in Rob Font let's see how he can start off his campaign at this new weight class all right, before we get into the breakdowns, let's go over the quick lock of the night and dog of the night breakdowns or recap from the previous UFC event, and I'm pretty happy with it. We go uh, 2-0. Obviously, we'll start off with the lock of the night with the Miktebike oral buy and Urosh Medic fight does not go to decision that cashes with relative ease uh, and that increases our record now to 96 and 33 on the year for lock of the night predictions that is a 74% hit rate on the dog of the night side of things we had Joe Anderson Brito who went out there and found the choke over Jonathan Pierce in the second round uh, you know obviously Pierce was having his way with him in the first round and a half or so but I knew it was just a matter of time before Pierce gave up either a knockout or a submission opportunity for Brito to latch on to and that's exactly what he was able to do that now increases our dog of the night record to 56 and 71 on the year for a 44 percent hit rate and a pretty good profit margin there as well uh, if you guys check out the lock of the night candidate and dog of the night candidate videos that I drop you'll see the specific numbers on that uh, and those will be dropping uh, later tonight actually so keep your eyes peeled for that um also, something I just wanted to announce real quick, the Lockheed Two-Step and Lockheed Trinity, that normally drops on Thursdays. This week, it will drop on Friday, but something I'm going to be doing, because we had a lot of good success with it when I did it for PFL last week, uh, I'm going to be dropping that free parlay for you guys even earlier. But to get access to it, you just have to go over to the Lock of the Night Patreon page. It is absolutely free. There is nothing you have to sign up for. Uh, no money you need to shell out. You, I'm just trying to divert traffic on over there, see how that goes. Check out the Lock of the Night Patreon page. The link for that is in the description below. And you'll see the UFC Austin free parlay, the Lockheed Two Stuff, the Lockheed Trinity. You guys can get access to that as early on Mondays uh, on Fight Week now rather than having to wait for the Thursday video to drop. So if you want to do that, make sure you guys check it out. Lock of the Night Patreon page. Link for that is in the description below. And then lastly, shout out to the guys over there at Godzilla Wins, giving your boy a platform to drop some written content for you guys on a weekly basis. Wednesdays, we drop the main event breakdown. Thursdays, we drop the top three money line spots for you guys. Uh, so make sure you guys check that out. Not just for the UFC and MMA, but they cover all the other top sports in the world. Obviously, NFL, uh, NBA, NHL, all of that is in full swing right now. So make sure you guys check it out.
out godzillawins.com link for that is also in the description below all right i believe we got 13 fights to cover for you guys on this ufc awesome card so without further ado let's get right into it first fight of the night is in the flyweight division where we got veronica hardy taking on jamie lynn horth now, starting off on the Hardy side, she had a successful return after three years on the shelf, having to deal with injuries, some life changes, and most notably, marrying Dan Hardy, who seems to have made a solid addition to her life, especially in the fighting world. We saw her put on a great performance against Juliana Miller earlier this year as she pulled off the upset as a near plus 250, plus 300 underdog. That was a fight where she kind of dictated the pace by utilizing her lateral movement and kicks from distance and then showcased great submission defense, but also great grappling where she was able to establish the top position, do some good work from on top, and then win that fight on the scorecards. It was a big upset, but I think it's a sign of things to come for Veronica Hardy as she's implementing the fight IQ that's being instilled from her or by to her by her now husband dan hardy but also the way she's improving uh fighting at flyweight which is probably where she would should have been the entire time i think we're going to see good things from her moving forward on the flip side we got jamie lynn horth who's coming in as a minus 180 favorite and off of her ufc debut from earlier this year where she went out there and won a close decision victory over Haley cowan she is a canadian fighter 33 years old and only six and oh at this stage in her career not many people expected her to even make it to the ufc considering her age and the ufc not usually you know going for prospects at this uh time of their career but all the circumstances worked out for her she was originally scheduled to fight sabina mazo back in uh december last year uh for the lfa title mazo pulled out uh cowan had troubles securing an opponent having multiple opponents fall out from january to march and then finally in step jamie lynn horth and horth made the most of it she showcased good aggression good knees in the clinch and elbows in the clinch uh good top pressure as well uh, a good pressure striking game uh she seems to have uh, you know a pretty well-rounded game but i think she's going to struggle in the uh, fact of, of going up against hardy here where i think that hardy's fight iq will allow her to take advantage of horth at her weakest spots and how what are her weakest spots considering that she's undefeated i think more so an ability to deal with fighters when they take her to the ground now horth has shown some decent submissions off of her back and uh, ability to get back to her feet but if you can continuously put her in bad positions and you have good enough cardio to go full 15 minutes i think she can uh be uh, worn down and, and worked on and i think that hardy can take full advantage of that i see hardy around plus 155 right now i think that's a damn good underdog spot here i think the combination of her lateral footwork and her speed and striking advantage from distance mixed in with the grappling that dan hardy kind of alluded to when he was on the mma hour last week saying that uh her and Ver uh, him and veronica came stateside a lot earlier so that he can get in time with the uh, some of the main jiu-jitsu gyms up there in new york and down in austin uh kind of showing his hand that probably they're going for a grapple heavy approach here and i think that's the best way to beat a fighter like jamie lynn horth so give me veronica hardy to pull off the dis uh, upset victory to kick off the card here and i think it comes by decision Next up in the welterweight division, we got Wellington Terman coming in as a minus 190 favor going up against Jared Gooden, who comes in at plus 165. We'll start off on the Terman side, who's still trying to find his footing in the UFC. He went on a two-fight winning streak and now finds himself on a two-fight losing streak. Most recently losing to Randy Brown, who was able to keep him on the feet and utilize his striking advantage to really thwart any type of approach Terman had and then in the third round Terman did a great job in terms of pushing the pace himself getting some some good success up against the cage landing his own damage but unfortunately for him it was too little too late he's been working with the Teixeira MMA team now for a couple fights and it seems like he's really getting comfortable over there but this is a must-win fight for him especially if he hopes to hold on to his UFC roster spot he's still only 27 years old he has 25 fights of experience and I believe that he can find the groove eventually but it really depends on the stylistic um, clash that he has ahead of him. He's a BJJ black belt, has improving striking. I just need to see him tie together a little bit better so that he can be successful. On the flip side for Jared Gooden, he is in his second stint with the UFC after his uh, return on short notice earlier this year where he came in seven pounds overweight against Carlton Harris. 
I was very pissed off by that as, uh, first of all, I don't, I, I think Gooden is decent, but I don't know if he's UFC level. And I think his first UFC stint showed that. He went one in three with the promotion and missed uh, weight pretty badly the last time uh, uh, for his last performance, which is why he ended up getting cut. He went four and one on the regional scene, ended up getting the short notice opportunity against Carlton Harris earlier this week or, or this year. And um, what what pissed me off about that, the fact that he missed by seven pounds, was he probably knew he was not going to make weight. If you miss weight by seven pounds, I can only imagine what weight he was uh, accepting that fight at. And people can say, oh, he came on short notice, we got to cut him some slack. But you got to look at it this way because he stole an opportunity from another fighter to take that position and make their own UFC debut. There's so many fighters on the regional scene that are deserving to make it to the UFC, but then you got a guy like Gooden who just goes out there and says, you know what, they already know me, they'll take me, they're just happy that I'm taking the fight, who cares if I miss weight? Seven pounds, you didn't even try to make weight, which really irks me, but... Again, I think this will be similar to his original stint in the UFC. I think it's going to take another maybe two fights for him. He'll likely end up losing and then get cut from the UFC again. He's a power striker with a developing ground game, but it's obvious that he is weakest when he is taken to the ground. And perfect for him. He's fighting a guy in Wellington Terman who's going to take him to the ground and likely take full advantage of that. As long as Terman's lights don't get turned off, which is something that Gooden is absolutely capable of doing, I fully expect Terman to be competitive in the striking run with him and then change up the levels, take this fight to the ground and do do big damage from on top. And I think he could even translate that into a submission victory for himself. So I'm going to go Wellington Terman here and I think he wins this fight, like I said, by submission. All right, moving over to the big boys here. We got the light heavyweights on tap between UFC debutant Rodolfo Bellato coming in as a minus 400 favorite. He goes up against Ihor Potieria, who comes in as a plus 330 dog. We'll start off on the Bellato side, who I was a little bit skeptical about after he originally lost his first interview on the Contender Series last year where he got knocked out by Vitor Petrino, but he went to, back to the regional scene Picked up a win over a scrub. Picked up a win over a ultimate fight, or sorry, a contender series alum in uh, Asasio dos Santos, where that uh, was a five-round one-sided fight for Bellator to go out there, pick up the decision victory, and win the LFA title. That set up his spot to come back to the contender series this year, and he pulled off a pretty big upset, going out there and uh, finishing Murtaza Taha in the second round. That was a fight where he was able to keep the fight upright stifling the wrestling game of Taha and then from there putting his punches together and really hurting Taha eventually getting that finish I believe Bellator is a BJJ black belt I I, I feel like uh, that is correct I, I don't know why it's escaping me at this moment in time but he has an improving striking game as well where he does a great job in terms of pressuring his opponents with his punches with his knees and with his kicks and he's going to be a tough out especially considering the amount of confidence he now has he's also aligned himself with the Teixeira MMA and fitness team which leads me to believe that this Teixeira team is really a hotbed now for uh, Brazilians to come up and uh, you know not have to join a super team like American Top Team or the Killcliffe FC crew but I think that Bellato uh, made a good ch- choice in terms of the trading partners he's going to be getting uh, at Teixeira MMA with you know the, the Alex Pereiras, the, the, the Glover Teixeira and even Wellington Terman who fights right before him here but um, on the Potieria side uh, I think he's finding out that the you know, lackadaisical approach he took in in his regional experience by just fighting complete tomato cans is not paying off for him anymore. He even found that out in his first UFC fight where he got completely squashed by Nikolai Negomarianu. And although he picked up a win earlier this year over my favorite fighter of all time, we know Mauricio Shogunhua was going into that with his retirement fight in mind and just that wasn't him. And we saw Potiera go out there and just squash him in that first round. Uh, but then he got a taste of reality once again when he got knocked out by Carlos Ulberg a couple months back. He's a powerful striker. He has some decent groundwork. But I think he is a guy that can absolutely break. And I feel like a guy like Bellato can break him. I think his forward pressure. And then once Potiera starts feeling the power on him, I think Potiera is going to start looking for a way out. And we'll see Bellato either finish this fight on the ground or swarm him with shots on the feet and finish him on the feet. So I think that this is a pretty easy spot for Bellato to go out there and get a win in his UFC debut. All right, next up, we got featherweights on tap as we have Steve Garcia coming in as a plus 210 underdog going up against Mel Quizayel 
Costa coming in at minus 250. On the Steve Garcia side, he's on a two-fight winning streak with both wins, coming by knockout over Chase Super and Shailan Nerdenbeka. Last time around, we saw Nerdenbeka have some success with the grappling. Garcia managed to work his way back to his feet, but then got taken down once again. But in the second round, we saw Shailan start to panic, and he just didn't have an answer for the striking onslaught that was coming his way from Garcia. And Garcia landed a beautiful uppercut to the body that crumpled Nerdenbeka, and that allowed Garcia to snap his second straight victory we know what we're getting with Garcia now this guy is an aggressive striker that likes to come forward and throw big punches and doesn't discriminate with the target that he throws at I believe his ground game is still a question as I think that most guys will be able to take advantage of him when they get the fight to the ground and even though he might be improving his takedown defense and get up game I still feel that's a flaw in his uh in his skill set that needs to be addressed especially if he hopes to make it to the next level in the UFC his opponent Mel Kuzayel, uh Costa nailed it uh, uh, pulled off his first UFC win last time around by absolutely uh, having a flawless performance against Austin Lingo he dropped his short notice UFC debut against Tiago Moises which we can give him a pass on especially considering how good he looked in his following fight against Austin Lingo he utilized a lot of lateral movement, movement from the outside, and long-range weapons, specifically with his kicks, to really hurt Lingo, keep him on the outside, and keep frustrating him. In the third round, we saw Costa take this fight to the ground and really put long, uh, Lingo into some bad spots, unable to get the finish, but Costa still had a flawless performance where he swept Lingo on the scorecards. This guy is still very talented, very skilled, and has a lot of potential at 27 years old, and I think if he can continue to put the game together well like he has been, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the rankings one day. But I think that this is a great fight for him to go out there and defeat Steve Garcia. I think he can remain competitive enough in the striking realm, specifically with his movement and long-range weapons. And then I think at a certain point, he'll be able to surprise Garcia Sorry, Garcia, with uh, changing levels, getting the fight to the ground, and doing big work from that top position. So I really like Costa here. I, I think that this is a fight where he has pretty much advantages in all aspects of this fight except the power that uh, Garcia might be able to hit him with. So give me Costa, and I think we'll actually see Costa get a finish. I'm going to call it via submission. All right, moving on to the next matchup. We got the lightweights on tap here, where we got the returning Jakar Close going up against Joe Selecki. Starting off on the close side, he's coming off of an ACL injury, so that's something to keep an eye on for the 35-year-old, but he's on a two-fight winning streak. We're talking about a guy that's 4-1 in his last five fights with that lone defeat coming at the hands of the man who's main eventing the car this weekend, Benio Dariush. That was a fight that gave us one of the best commentating booth moments we've ever seen where Joe Rogan, Daniel Cormier, and John Anik all lose their shit when these guys throw down in the pocket and let absolute hell take over. Unfortunately for Joe Carr Close, he was the one on the receiving end of that knockout loss, uh, but he has bounced back pretty well with uh, wins over Brandon Jenkins and Rafa Garcia. He has a solid wrestling game, which is something that he often likes to lean on, but also has a solid pressure game and striking game where he has a good idea of what kind of output to uh, put against his opponent, what type of volume to keep, and from there he usually does a good enough job in terms of getting his hand raised. His opponent, Joe Selecki, coming in with a two-fight winning streak of his own, is a guy that really hasn't reached the potential a lot expected from him when he originally came to the UFC. Again, his only loss... Uh, I believe in his last five fights is to Jared uh, Gordon. Uh, but even in the fights that he's been winning, I just haven't been overly impressed with. Uh, the Alex De Silva fight, you know, that was a fight that I thought he probably could have ended up losing on the scorecards, even with the point taken away from Alex De Silva. But Selecki is a guy, BJJ black belt, likes to take his opponents to the ground and do good work from on top, but I haven't been most the most impressed with his work off of his back. From what I've been seeing, this guy just likes to hold on to his opponents and wait for the referee to stand them back up, but not really showing many submissions off of his back or even looking for get-ups, if I'm being honest. Um, striking leaves a lot to be desired. I think his wins thus far are, you know, that Jim Miller first round. It was getting really shaky there for him. You know, I had a, that's when I was very high on Selecki and had him as a lock and then I play and I was sweating my ass off in that first round when he was unable to get up from the ground game that Jim Miller was showcasing. But luckily he came back in the second and third rounds, got enough control time of his own and got the uh, the W. 
Uh, this is a fight where I feel like he's going to be screwed unless Close is nowhere close to the fighter that he used to be before this ACL injury. Close should be able to dictate the pace of this fight from the striking to the grappling. And I think even if he looks to go out there and get the takedowns himself and do good work from on top, Selecki won't have much to offer off of his back, at least from what I've been seeing from his past tape. I think that this is a great spot for Drakkar Close. I wish I could have some more confidence in him. The only thing holding me back is the ACL injury that he's coming back from and the fact that he's 35 years old. Usually, knees don't recover the best when fighters start reaching this aspect of their career. But I feel like stylistically speaking, Drakkar Close has pretty much all the advantages in this matchup outside of the BJJ black belt that uh, Selecki uh, holds here. So give me Close. I think close by decision, uh, and I think we see him come back successfully, but I would just be wary in terms of the amount of confidence that you have in him going into this matchup. All right. Next up, let's go to the middleweights where we have debuting Zachary Reese uh, coming in as a minus 230 favorite going up against public enemy number one, uh, Cody Brundage, who comes in at plus 195. We'll start off on the Zachary Reese side, who's 6-0, secured his UFC contract with a big win on the Contender Series earlier this year. And, you know, a lot of people are excited about this 29-year-old prospect. None of his fights have went out of the uh, first round. I don't even think any of his fights have gotten to the second minute of his fights. You know, I believe uh, three of his six fight uh, wins have come under a minute. Uh, the guy is a athletic freak, uh, has a ton of power, a ton of explosiveness, and likes to seek out submissions when he gets the opportunity. But we've seen this story over and over again. When undefeated guys come from the contender series or even from the regional scene, especially if they're so reliant on early finishes, they usually end up facing a tough test that are, is tough to put away. Uh, somebody that gives them the most resistance they've felt to date. And then they're unable to overcome that. Is this the fight for Reese where he ends up feeling it? Well, let's quickly talk about Brundage before I let you guys know what I think. Brundage is obviously public enemy number one after he snapped a three-fight losing streak by taking a disqualification loss over Jacob Malkoon. Malkoon was absolutely smashing uh, Cody Brundage that night until he landed an illegal elbow that Cody Brundage was unable to recover from and uh, referee Mark Smith deemed that elbow intentional and ultimately disqualified Jacob Malkoon that night. But Cody Brundage is a guy that was originally known for his wrestling and ability to thrive in chaotic situations. That's what got him his wins over Dalcha, Lungi, Mbouli, and Trishan Gore. But he's been coming up short against some of the guys and making very bad decisions in the cage as well the most or the worst decision he's made over his last couple of fights pulling guillotine against a guy like Rodolfo Vieira who is one of the best BJJ practitioners the UFC has ever seen but Brundage still has time on his side he's only 29 years old and if he can fix up a couple of things in his game this is a guy that could potentially bounce back and find himself having success in the UFC now the prediction for this fight for me it lies heavily on the experience advantage of Cody Brundage as well as the odds that we're getting here on Brundage because there's so many unknowns about Zachary Reese and we see this time and time again guys that go out there and get highlight reel finishes and then come into the UFC or even if they do it in the UFC they usually get that public love because guys like look how fantastic this guy look or, or look at this guy's record like they just let that blind them but they don't take into consideration the veteran experience of the other fighter uh the possible cardio advantages the other fighter could have as well because we have no idea what zachary reese is going to look like if this fight hits the third minute like it's 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 tough to be so confident in the chalky side when we have such little footage of a fighter going past the two-minute mark of a fight and even facing anybody of legitimate standing. Um, I'm going to go Brundage here. Like, this might be an unpopular pick this uh, week. I'm not doing it with much confidence. I just don't think this line should be this wide. And I think we have to give some weight to Brundage's experience and, you know, how long he's been around and what he's able to do. He might have the wrestling advantage in this matchup. He might have what it takes to rough up Reese up against the cage, wear on him, and then take advantage of Reese as Reese starts to slow down, getting into deep waters that he's never been in before. Brundage might not be the guy. But at plus 195, I think it's down worth a shot to see if Brundage ends up coming out on top. So give me Brundage. Uh, even if you don't like the plus 195, his round props that I saw were pretty damn good. I think plus 600 round one, plus 1,000 round two, plus 1,400 round three. Even if you just want to sprinkle those, I do think he gets the finish. I just don't know at what point it comes. 
but I, I'm, I don't mind just taking the straight up uh, plus 195 on his money line either. All right, let's move on to the next weight, uh, next fight, which is a bantamweight matchup between uh, returning Misha Tate and the uh, another returning fighter and Julia Avila. We got plus 125 on Misha Tate, who is currently riding a two-fight losing streak. And she is on a rough run as of late as well, as she's one in four in her last five fights. Now, we remember it back in 2016, she uh, retired after losing to Raquel Pennington at UFC 205, which I believe was the UFC debut, UFC's debut event at Madison Square Garden. She took off enough time. She became a mother, took off even more time, and eventually came back in 2021 where she picked up a third-round TKO victory over Marion Renault. Unfortunately, since then, it's been nothing but bad times for her as she got completely whooped by Catlin Vera and then got completely whooped by Lauren Murphy last time around. She showed so much wear and tear in that Murphy fight that it just was not a nice thing to look at. Um, but Tate, we got to hand it to her. She was showcasing very solid uh, striking, uh, not striking, sorry. She was showing off uh, grit and heart in that Murphy fight. Even though she's bloodied, battered, and bruised that night, she did a great job in terms of continuously moving forward and putting the pressure on Murphy. That may not work against a fighter like Murphy, but it could work against other fighters in this division. We know what Tate is normally good at, and that's being able to take opponents to the ground, grind them out from that top position, opening up TKO or submission opportunities for herself. But we have yet to see her really encapture that since her original UFC run. On the flip side for Julia Avila, she's coming back from a two and a half year long layoff, which saw her sit on the sidelines due to a pregnancy. She actually had her first child, if I'm not mistaken, and she uh, spent enough time to be on the sidelines, be a mother, and then eventually make the transition to eventually getting back into the MMA world. Last time around, we saw her pick up a submission victory over Yulia Stolyarenko, which was a fight that was way closer than it should have been. We saw on the judges' scorecards, two, uh, one judge had two rounds to nothing for Stolyarenko, one judge had two nothing for Julia Avila, and the other judge had a 1-1 Avila. But one thing was for certain, Avila was winning that third round even before she ended up getting the finish. This is a fighter that's very aggro. You know, she lacks a lot of uh, technical aspects, especially in the striking round, but makes up for it with her aggression and her ability to move forward and put that power on her opponents. When she's at her best, she's able to drag them to the ground and then just smash them from that top position. But we've been seeing some issues in her fights, uh, especially in the Sajar Eubanks fight, which was her first loss in the UFC and first legitimate loss considering the prior loss was a, a hand injury that quickly happened uh, at the beginning of her fight in Invicta. Uh, and then even in the Stolyarenko fight, specifically her takedown defense. When opponents look to take her to the ground, they're able to do so. And she does a decent enough job in terms of trying to stay active from her back and then eventually working back to her feet. But it seems like even in the Eubanks fight that if you're able to successfully pull that style off over and over again, it's going to get harder for Avila to get back to her feet. So in this fight, you know, she's the slight favorite here at minus 145. Is she aggro enough? Is she aggressive enough to take advantage of Tate the way that Murphy did? But I think the difference between Murphy and Tate, or sorry, Murphy and Avila, is the fact that Murphy actually had some solid technical striking. You know, she's been working with Crew uh, Perez down there in uh, Houston, which is the same coach as Derek, uh, Derek Lewis. But Avila... We know that her technical striking really isn't there. It could still be enough for her to just power through whatever Tate's throwing back at her, but I expect Tate to be more successful with her wrestling approach in this fight, which would give Avila some fits. I think Avila is in for a tough time, especially after giving birth and trying to come back against a fighter of Tate's caliber, even though Tate is 37 years old at this time. But at underdog odds, I feel like this is a fight that Tate can go out there and drag this fight to the ground and have great success from on top. It might be hard early to establish that top position, but in rounds two and three, I expect it to get easier and easier for Tate to do so. And that's why I think that she's a damn good underdog spot on this card for two fighters that haven't really been active uh, as of late. All right, let's move on to the next weight, next fight, which is a lightweight matchup between Clay the Carpenter Guido, who is still kicking it around at 41 years old, soon to be 42. He comes in as a plus 250 underdog against Joaquim Silva. We'll start off on the uh, Clay Guido side, who has surprisingly managed to keep his UFC roster spot, avoid anything longer than a two-fight losing streak as well as a two-fight winning streak. Um, over the past eight years, absolutely crazy what this guy's been able to do. Uh, or sorry, probably even nine years at this point in time. Uh, but he can still go out there and pull off some solid wins. His last three wins have come over guys like Michael Johnson, 
Leonardo Santos, and most recently, Scott Holtzman. But his last fight, he ended up losing to Rafa Garcia. We see the fights in which he ends up losing. Guys that are technically more better than him in whether it's striking, whether it's just uh, grappling, and guys that have a good enough gas tank to go out there and damage him over 15 minutes, just the way that Rafa Garcia did. Guida's movement and never staying still style has been the thorn in the side of most opponents, which is why he has such a had such longevity inside the UFC. Technically speaking, I think he is best at wrestling, but even that is not really above the average level in the UFC. It's just his heart, it's his grit, and it's his cardio that keeps him keeps him in a lot of these fights. His opponent, Joaquin Silva, is a powerful striker with a BJJ black belt. Last time around, he was given a tough task in taking Armand Sarukin, a fighter that not a lot of people wanted to fight at that time, but he still wanted to stay active and the UFC throw in Joaquin Silva. But Silva did a solid job in that second round, hurting Sarukin very badly and getting all three judges to score that second round in his favor. Unfortunately for him, Sarukin turned it up a notch in that third round and was able to battle back and get a uh, finish with about uh, 90 seconds left on the clock. Silva... Solid fighter. I have some question marks in terms of his cardio at times, but I think when he's able to dictate the pace, strike at his own uh, rate and own distance and own style, he should be able to have success more often than not. And I think that's what we're going to see here against Clay Guida. I think this fight looks similarly to the Rafa Garcia fight. As long as Joaquim Silva doesn't let the movement uh, and, you know, uh, bouncy style of Clay Guida uh, force him to be too gun-shy. If he just lets the strikes go, they're going to land. They're going to hurt Guida. Um, I I don't know if it translates into a finish. I'm going to say it does, but I wouldn't go uh, all in on... uh, Silva inside the distance. I do like Silva straight up, so I wouldn't even mind him paying the chalk on him at this price. But I think that even uh, uh, parlaying him is not, would not be a bad idea. I'm going to go Joaquim Silva. I think he gets the finish over Guida. But if this fight reaches the third round, things could get a little bit shaky. All right. Moving on to the next fight is in the middleweight division. We got Puna Hale Soriano coming in as a minus 300 chalky favorite going up against the plus 250 underdog Dustin Stoltzfus. We'll start off on the Puna side who's coming off a loss via TKO to Roman Kopilov earlier this year where Kopilov just showcased a better technical striking game, fending off the takedowns and making Puna work from distance, eventually slowing Puna down and finishing him in the second round like I said. At his best, Soriano is a guy that goes out there and finishes his opponents in the first round or the first minute of the second round like he did against Lungiambula. But this is a guy that is always going to be kind of just at the mercy of his gas tank and his explosive striking style. Even when he tries to go out there and implement a grapple-heavy approach, he struggles in terms of maintaining that and establishing that top position because he is exerting so much energy trying to keep his opponents down. But when he is able to let go with his hands and land with efficiency, it's hard to stand up and resist the type of power that he provides, which is why more often than not, we see opponents end up crumbling before him. His opponent this weekend, Dustin Stolzfus, has had a rough run in the UFC, now 1-4 over his last five fights. It was a Dwight Grant win for him where he outvolumed the low-volume style of Dwight Grant, which got him a new contract and an ability to stay in the UFC for a little bit longer. But... A 13-second knockout to Abus Magomedov last time around is probably not going to be the best in terms of being able to stay in the UFC at 32 years old. He's decent everywhere, has a decent ground game, uh, can put on good output onto his opponents and make them work. But I think he has a chin issue, something that will haunt him in this matchup, especially against a guy with a power and explosiveness as Punahale Soriano. And... uh, like, there is a chance for Stoltzfus to pull off the upset if he's able to survive that first round. So if there is a live betting opportunity where you can get Stoltzfus at an even better price, maybe he's worth a shot at it in the second or third round. But I think for the most part, we're going to see Puna crash the distance, crash the pocket, land his big shots, and lay out Stoltzfus once again. So give me Soriano, minus 300, a little bit too much. I'd probably hone in on that round one prop, maybe the under one and a half, whatever it might be. But uh, minus 300, a lot to spend on a guy who is more often than not round one or bust. But I'm still going to take Punahale Soriano, and I think he wins this fight by knockout. All right, these last four fights have me super excited, especially for a fight night card. Very competitive matchups here, and I can't wait to break it down for you guys. So let's get right into it. Welterweight matchup between Sean Brady, who suffered his first professional loss last time around, 
He steps in against Kelvin Gastelum, who's finally going back down to welterweight. Before we get into that, let's just get into the Brady side of things, who did pick up his first professional loss last year at the hands of Bilal Muhammad. Unfortunately, since then, Sean Brady has been forced to pull out of a couple fights. I believe the last of which was due to an infection that he had suffered. Um, and uh, yeah, very unfortunate circumstance for him. As he, I'm sure he wants to get the monkey off his back in terms of bouncing back and getting into the win column. He's been scheduled against some complete killers and it continues this weekend as he takes on Calvin Gaslam. But we know what Brady's style is all about. This guy is five foot ten at welterweight and just absolutely stacked. <laughs> like this guy goes out there and can really put pace or sorry, uh, pressure and strength on fighters that not many fighters have experienced in the past. He's a BJJ black belt with a nasty choke game, especially when he's able to get his hands around your neck. He gets his opponents to the ground normally and grinds them out from that top position, but he was unable to even sniff a takedown against Bilal Muhammad, who did a great job in terms of establishing position, utilizing his straight shots down the pipe, keeping Brady at bay, and just letting his volume go to continuously frustrate and deter the confidence of Brady, which ended up causing Brady to slow down and eventually being forced to get uh, knocked out or TKO'd in that second round. Brady needs to figure out how to close the distance against these guys that can establish that range. Otherwise, he's going to continue to get picked apart. Again, it's only his first loss. He can still bounce back from it. He's only 31 years old. This could be a learning experience for him. His opponent this weekend, though, Kelvin Gaslam, a guy that many people have been wanting to go back down to 170 pounds for years, finally does so this weekend. We saw him come out last time around and get a close decision victory over Chris Curtis. And that was his full first full training camp with the guys down there in Arizona at Fight Ready. For those who have been around the sport for a while, you know that Kevin Gaslam has been a um, main member of the Kings MMA team over there in California uh, under the watchful eye of Rafael Cordero. But uh, Gaslam realized that he needed to switch things up a little bit and decided to do so by moving down to Fight Ready. I think the most important partnership that he formed when he moved down to Arizona was with the guys over there at Neuroforce One. You see that he is in absolutely shredded shape right now, and that's going to be important for him, especially for a weight class that he used to struggle to make. But given the five foot nine frame that he has with the 71-inch reach, everybody believed that he would be most effective at welterweight, just as he showed through his first several fights in the UFC when he was at that weight class. Now that he's going back to it, and I think he's doing it the right way, he has the perfect amount of experience and maturity under his belt finally, we could see the best version of Kelvin Gaslam come this weekend. This is a fighter that has slick boxing combinations, big power in his hands, but also a very underrated grappling and jujitsu game. And I think that's something that he's going to be able to show off here against Sean Brady, who might be able to or might not be able to keep him down uh, on the mat. I want to see this. I, I want to see the scrambling here. You know, I believe Gaston would benefit from being able to keep this fight upright and utilizing his speed and his uh, power in his hands to keep uh, Brady, uh, you know, on the defense. But on the ground, I think Gaston is much better than people are expecting. And I think that heel hook loss to Jack Hermanson was just... It was an anomaly. Like, I don't think that was uh, Kelvin Gaston at his best, nor was it him at his most motivated. So I, I like Gaston here as the dog. Like, I think that... He is far more skilled all around than Brady. He has way more experience than him. And now back at 170 pounds, I think he can finally compete with these guys uh, and not get completely bullied in the clinch or the grappling room because of the size and uh, strength difference that he was facing when he was fighting up at middleweight. So give me Gaslam. Gaslam, um, I'm going to say, what do I have here? I'm going to say in uh, by decision. Um, I think he has a style to wear on Brady and potentially finish him late. Um, but we have to see how he looks coming down to Waldo. Everything that I've been hearing and seeing from him seems to be that he'll be on point and ready to go. Um, but we got to see it to believe it first. I think that this is his uh, coming out party for the welterweight division. All right. Speaking of changing weight classes, we're going to go to the bantamweight division now where we got Rob Font taking on former flyweight champion, multiple-time flyweight champion, Davison Figueredo, who comes up to 135 pounds. We'll start off on the Rob Font side of things who got completely outgrinded and outgrappled by Corey Sandhagen earlier this year where he got taken down, I think it was seven time, five times or seven times, but got controlled for over 20 minutes of a 25-minute matchup. It came to light that Corey Sandhagen was dealing with a pretty bad injury but did not want to pull out off of... Uh, 
um, from such a high opportunity moment for him, especially with that fight taking place in San Antonio in front of a live crowd and being a five-round main event spot. Uh, it's been rough times for Rob Font over his last four fights. He's one in three. He had a big win over Adrian Yanez two fights ago, but that was on the back end of two shellackings from Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera, who I believe combined for five knockdowns over the 50 minutes of cage time that Rob Font had. We'll credit him for the fact that he did not see or look for a way out in those matchups, even after getting dropped numerous times by these guys. And he stuck with his volume style approach. You know, he outstruck most of these guys, but the damage that he was taking in return did not look so good for the judges, which is why he ended up losing those fights. His takedown defense, obviously a big question mark, especially after what Corey Sandhagen was able to do to him. And at 36 years old, you have to start wondering when this fighter is going to start slowing down. His opponent this weekend, Davison Figueredo, might be the only fighter ever to have fought the same fighter four times in a row, and that record may never be broken in UFC history. We saw him go uh, one, two, and one against Brandon Moreno over the last four fights. A spectacular rivalry, very fun fights all throughout, uh, but it was Moreno who ended up having the last laugh last time around as it was a 1-1 fight going into the third round, and then Moreno landed this beautiful punch, perfectly placed, perfectly timed, and perfectly executed punch to the eye of Figueredo. Figueredo thought it was a I poke, but it was not. Uh, that caused Figueredo's eye to swell up over the following three minutes and eventually uh, render him uh, defenseless and it caused the referee to stop that fight uh, going into the fourth round. Um, very unfortunate for Figueredo there, but apparently it was the wake-up call he needed that he could not any longer cut down to 125 pounds because that was always a big challenge for him. Now I'm curious to see him at 135 pounds and what damage he could do here. He has enough power for him to translate to this division very well. And also his strength should allow him to put p people in bad positions and maybe even open up submission opportunities as we've seen him really uh, uh, love that, that choke series, that front choke series, like what he pulled off against Alex Perez. I think that Figueredo has something solid to still offer to this bantamweight division. He's 35 years old. I think he'll be 36 very shortly. So if he can rattle off a couple quick fights here, he might be able to find himself in title contention, especially considering the they're, they're giving him Rob Font right off the bat. Uh, but if he does it in spectacular fashion with these wins, a lot of people would want to see him fight for the 135-pound title. Um, I am going to lean the power and damage advantage that Figueredo will likely have in this matchup. I get it. Rob Font will win the minutes, but Figueredo will win the moments, and that could end up either producing a finish or producing another decision loss for Rob Font, just as he had in the Marlon Vera fight and the Jose Aldo fight, where he was unable to overcome the damage that was being inflicted on him. And Davidson Figueredo could absolutely still do that. So give me Figueredo here. I think he'll land the big shots. I think I have him down as a finish as well. Yeah, I'm going to say Figueredo by knockout. Um, big spot for him, big spot for both guys. But I think that Font's uh, striking defense this is going to be the uh, the Achilles heel in his ability to break through into that top three. And once again, we'll see Figueredo take advantage of that and get that knockout victory. All right, co-main event time again. Originally scheduled to be a five-round uh, fight between Bobby Green and Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker falls out and in steps Jalen Turner and minus two rounds. This is now a three-round fight, but I'm very intrigued by it nonetheless. All right, let's start off on the Jalen Turner side who comes in as a minus 195 favorite. And over the last couple of days has been taking some, uh, or sorry, Bobby Green has been taking action, which is where we saw J uh, Jalen Turner on that minus 240, minus 250 range excuse me, earlier this week. We're seeing that action coming on Bobby Green, which has brought Jalen Turner down uh, below that minus 200 mark now. Turner is on a two-fight losing streak, which is very unfortunate considering the amount of steam and heat that he had on his name before that Matoush Gamrot fight. We saw him finish guys like Arush Manich, Jamie Malarkey, and Brad Riddell uh, en route to that big fight with Matoush Gamrot. But unfortunately, Gamrot's grappling ended up being too much for him that night. And then following that up, Dan Hooker ended up landing some big damage on uh, Turner and taking over late in that matchup. 
Turner normally does a great job in terms of utilizing his long-range weapons, his knees and his elbows inside the clinch. And he has a sneaky choke game, as we saw in the Urosh Medic fight. This guy is a guy that is 28 years old, 20 fights of experience, still has a ton of potential that is untapped at this moment in time. But I think the most important thing, even during this losing streak that he's on, is the amount of experience that he's accruing against high-level competition. That will be very important for him as he continues ascent or his progression through the UFC. And I think even if he ends up taking a loss this weekend, the UFC will be looking to keep him in play and continue to build him back up and uh, you know hopefully utilize the experience that he's been getting over his last couple of fights. I like Turner's style, but I think it's depending on the stylistic approach that he's fighting to determine whether he's going to come out on top or not. His opponent this weekend, Bobby Green, is looking in fine form at 37 years old as he is coming off a massive upset victory last time around where he knocked out Grant Dawson in less than a minute of their main event matchup a couple months back. That is now a two-fight winning streak for Bobby Green, a pretty successful uh, 2023 for him thus far, and he hopes to end it off with a bang with another big win as an underdog against Jalen Turner this weekend. Normally, Bobby Green is a guy that goes out there, utilizes a volume-heavy approach to stay on his opponents, keep the pressure on them, and put those uh, put that damage together. He's a guy that hasn't normally been known to be a finisher, but that has definitely been on the menu as of late for him. I believe in this matchup, if he can keep Turner on his back foot, if he can continue to walk down Turner, if he can provide his volume-heavy style that he normally does, he'll be very live in this fight to pull off an upset victory over the young gun in uh, Jalen Turner. Again, Turner has a nine-year youth advantage on him for whatever that means, but I think the experience and stylistic class here favors Bobby Green as I don't think that he is, uh, you know, a guy that's... Um, that has durability issues. Obviously, we saw Drew Dober absolutely knock him out uh, last year. Uh, the Iza Mahachev fight was a TKO on the mat due to the grappling advantage that Mahachev had. I don't know if Turner will be able to put him out the way that uh, Turner has put out other guys. So I'm going to go with Bobby Green here. I think Bobby, the guy who has been um, preparing for this matchup for a longer period of time, or this slot, I should say, against the guy in Jalen Turner who has had weight issues in the past, missed weight, I believe, against Dan Hooker, now taking this fight in short notice, and at the same weight class at 155 pounds, you got to wonder what his gas tank is going to look like when this fight inevitably goes into deep waters. So give me Bobby Green here, and I think he ends up pulling off a decision victory. Classic Bobby Green decision to get his hand raised. All right, big-time lightweight main event here. Plus 260 on Benio Dariush, minus 310 on Armand Sarukian. I believe this matchup will provide a ton of fireworks, whether it's with the hands or the grappling. This should be a fight night, main event worthy fight, uh, especially in front of the sold out crowd that they have down there in Austin. Start off on the Benio Darius side, who had his eight-fight winning streak snapped last time around in a number one contender fight against Charles Oliveira. That was a fight where we saw Benio have some early success with his grappling and his top pressure until Charles was able to get back to his feet and then put the striking pressure on Darius, eventually knocking him out in the dying seconds of that first round. Darius is a guy that originally came into the UFC with a high-level BJJ game, but has also improved his striking game tremendously, especially with the work that he's been getting at King's MMA. I think the breakout performance for him, even in a loss, was against Edson Barboza, where he outstruck him for the majority of that fight until Barboza uncorked a beautiful flying knee to eventually knock him out. But Dariush is a guy that has normally showcased solid durability. He's a guy that can go out there and take a decent shot and eventually take le change levels, get fights to the ground, and then showcase his smothering grappling style. His opponent this weekend, Armand Sarukian, is on a two-fight winning streak after dropping a very close decision to Matoush Gamrat back in January of 2022. Sarukian is a guy that has been shouting from the rooftops that he deserves to be in title contention, and considering the way that he defeated Demir Magulov, it's hard not to be. The guy has a very strong grappling game, and the way that he is improving his striking as well with American Top Team makes him even more dangerous. This is a guy that had a very close fight with Islam Mahachev in his UFC debut back in 2019 and has had his eyes set on a rematch ever since that night. He is very skilled. His wrestling, high level. His control, his scrambles, high level. His striking, becoming high level as well. But I feel like this fight is going to play out closer than the odds suggest. This will be one of those rare moments where I predict Armand Sarukian to win, and I think it ends up coming over that three and a half round mark, which will probably end up being my favorite um, 
prediction for this matchup. I think it ends up coming by decision for Sarukian. But we saw how close a lot of those grappling exchanges against Matos Gamera were. Darius is a guy that pretty much controlled the entire fight with Matos Gamera. And I'm not trying to do MMA math here by any means. But we know Darius has a great scrambling game. And he's going to have an answer for the wrestling approach that uh, Sarukian will be looking to take. So this will be more competitive than the odds suggest. So I am looking at a spot here where I could take a half unit shot on Darius just because the odds are a little bit out of whack. But I feel like this is a spot that Sarukian is ready for. This is a spot that Sarukian can control with his likely his striking advantage and then hopefully some control from that top time. But it's so hard to predict seeing guys trying to outgrapple Darius as nobody has been able to do that against the guy. Nobody. He always creates scrambles. He always finds a way back to his feet or finding a reversal to end up in the top position. It's insane what he's been able to uh, to achieve. Prediction is Sarukian, but I am not touching that chalk. Darius is way more live than plus 260 indicates. Don't let the lore and love for Sarukian blind you too much. Again, throw him into a parlay if you want. Go ahead. But like going all in on Sarukian this weekend is not a good idea. Darius is a guy that is more than capable of pulling off upsets. Give me Sarukin for the decision victory over three and a half. My favorite prediction. Uh, but Terry Yush is worth a small underdog shot. All right, there you guys go. Breakdowns on all 13 fights for this UFC Austin card. It is great to be back in the groove, back in the saddle, breaking these fights down for you guys. Again, this is the home stretch for the 2023 calendar year for the UFC. Uh, we got UFC Austin this week. We got a UFC Vegas card next week, which I believe is headlined by Song Yadong and Chris Gutierrez. And then ending off the year, we got a great uh, pay-per-view. I believe it's two title fights. We got... Um, Leon Edwards defending against Colby Covington. And then we got uh, Alexandre Pantoja defending his flyweight title for the first time against former ch- uh, former challenger uh, Braden Royval. So, ton of great fights. Not to mention PFL Europe going down next week. No regional fights for me this week, but there will be a ton of regional content over the next couple weeks. Check out the Lock of the Night Patreon page for that. And then I'll see you guys later tonight for the top three Lock of the Night predictions top three dog of the night predictions or candidates i should say and then tomorrow for the ufc quick picks video as well as the uh actually yeah it'll just be the quick picks video and then friday free parlay video as well as the top three prop bets for you guys all right love you guys appreciate you guys good luck this weekend see you guys later peace Last thing.